The word vulnerable was used by a member at a recent meeting to describe our beloved community as we have and continue to experience changes. It seemed fitting when Reverend Sidney um, identified the, the theology of vulnerability as the theme for this service. So, of course, I looked at what the experts had to say about this and found the most basic definition as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. It is that unstable feeling we get when we step out of our own comfort zones to do something that forces us or feels like it forces us to lose control. It is also described as the courage to show up when you can't control the outcome. Alec Hutchinson in Living Peace, Essential Teaching for Enriching Life says, and I quote, vulnerability really means to be strong and secure enough within yourself that you are able to walk outside without your armor on. You are able to show up in life just as you are. That is genuine strength and courage. Armor may look tough, but all it does is mask insecurity and fear. Our armor can take many forms and intensities, most deeply personal and from our lived experience. But I envision getting that armor off holds an image of open hands, open hearts, and open minds. Researcher, author, and Texas academic Brene Brown spent 14, or 12 years studying vulnerability, shame, and connection. I have to admit that I'm not one of her top fans, but she has five number one New York Times bestsellers and one of the top 10 TED Talks, which just happens to be about vulnerability. Her key messages emphasize that too often we listen to our critical inner voices, especially in situations where there are no guarantees, and hear that there may be something about us that if others see, we will not be worthy of connection. In her findings, those who are most vulnerable and most courageous are also the most well-connected with others, also resulting in the opportunities for enhanced love, joy, creativity, belonging, and trust. Shifting to another expert that I am a fan of, our own Reverend Christina, she noted in one of her recent services that one of her top three sermon topics was, you are enough. Our individual and collective fear of not being good enough ties directly to our ability to show up around either life, uh, creates vulnerable situations, or ourselves choose to move into an uncertain and no guarantees place. I heard a recent example of this moving forward confidently in our annual meeting last Sunday. New leaders, committees, and plans were abundant. We are enough as a community. 
I would be remiss without noting the good example of Reverend Sidney stepping into a changing situation to lead us during this time. You have our gratitude. I would also vulnerably say that much of my time considering this topic was directly influenced by a new experience I have chosen that has made me feel very vulnerable. On Tuesday, I leave for Bayfield, Wisconsin, gateway to the Apostle Islands National Lakeshore, 20 wilderness designated islands in Lake Superior. For my family, me, and some of my ancestors, one of the most sacred places on earth. We have enjoyed this space for nearly five decades. It is time for me to give back. So this time, I'm going to Stockton Island about an hour out into Lake Superior for a three-week volunteer appointment as a solo National Lakeshore Ranger. It will be me, the backpackers, the kayakers, the boaters, and the island. Stockton has one of the largest concentrations of black bears in the area, 21 in this count this spring. My backup is via the National Park Service radio and the Coast Guard. I am thrilled for this opportunity and terrified, feeling so, so vulnerable. Vulnerable to what could happen with weather challenges, visitor injuries, bear and other animal encounters, lost day hikers, stranded kayakers, and so many challenging possibilities. But sharing this reflection with you has also reinstilled for me is that I am now also vulnerable and open to a unique chance of a lifetime, connecting with people, experiences, and the wilderness herself as never before. All of us can be stepping out of our comfort zones to make real and authentic connections. May it be so. Well, it's been quite a week for me watching the U.S. Congressional hearing on the January 6th Capitol events is an exercise in breathing through tragedy in the ancient philosophical Greek sense, breathing through the combination of pity and horror of this moment in our history, an experience of intense fragility, the vulnerability of this American experiment in democracy. While we've been through pinnacles of tension before, as my colleague and historian, Reverend Fred Wooden puts it, when he points to Shays' Rebellion of 1786, the Know-Nothing Party of the 1850s with its chilling resonances to today's polarization, the Civil, oops, the Civil War itself, McCarthyism, Vietnam, all those are times where we have been here before, but others point out what's not happened before. Climate change, social media, corporate influence. It may not be a time for optimism, but it certainly is a time for hope. 
to meet the asking years, my own hope is bolstered when I attend to community, to comfort for myself, and collaboration. I'm interested in cultivating both deep concern and deep calm. I like balance. I like to work with the dialectics of my own position in the world of both privilege and vulnerability. I like to work with the, the human predicament of living as an individual and as a community, the unit and the universal, the Unitarian and Universalist. The grand, sweeping, overpowering theories of theological universal absolutes, the assumption of a wholly objective stance has not proven the test of time in order to meet the asking years. It ignores the coordinates, the position of those who make the generalizations, the overarching theologies. So while traditional theology asks us to look at what is the world, what is a human being, what is God or the transcendent, there is now another axis, and that's location, coordination, co our coordinates, our orienting ourselves in history, on the planet, socioeconomically, in gender, all the axes that tell us that we are unique and also living in our own bias. But let's step back for a moment. Why theology? I recall my absolute panic unto despair when I was asked as a fun icebreaker at the beginning of seminary to just declare my theology. <laughs> All I could come up with Everybody had all these words and theories and citations. What did I have? Everything is connected. And now I agree with that hesitant student self. In the interconnected web, we interbe, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, we inter-are. But I was interested in those categories and divisions of formal theology, and I'm grateful to those who invited me to enter that realm. I remember Professor Michael Coogan, who gifted us with his vulnerability as he wrestled right in front of us with his deep intellectual and Catholic backgrounds after coming to class from staying up all night the night before for the home birth of his first child and speaking from a cloud of shimmering ecstasy and trying to make it all make sense and teach. The best I can do, I recall him saying, is that theos for theology is from the ancient Greek for divinity, that is, deities or divinities. 
So gods, goddesses, the spirits, forces, not only beyond transcendent, but also within the making of meaning, the intersection of thought and life force is holy ground. And Mike Hogue of Meadville Lombard bespeaking religious naturalism who emphasized theology, which means study, ology, to remind us that one's theology is not a God, God's self, because that would be idolatry, but it's the study of these matters. Study was never only intellectual. There used to be a room in my grandparents' apartment called the study. It was always a place of peace. And then out in the streets in a place of exuberance, I remember singing, I ain't gonna study war no more. And then there was the response I often heard in my diverse church in Chicago where I grew up. When something came along, people said, I'll study on that. So to study the spirits of life, the forces, the divinity with and among and beyond us can be done with the mind, of course. We use that ability to envision the world as it could be, the religious imagination, where in the language of my earliest UU hymn book, Unitarian hymn book, the Red Book, we will work together as a community until the day spring breaks and the shadows flee away bringing together our heart's yearning and our religious imagination. The traditional biblical query in Psalm 8 asks, What is man that thou art mindful of him? It was chiseled on the highest cornice of the philosophy building, and it seemed extremely serendipitous to us eager students of world religion when the ivy climbed up higher and higher and higher and covered what is man that thou art mindful of him to say that thou art. Well, that's the Hindu formulation, Tam Tavat Asi, to the question, what is human? That thou art, you are that, capital T, you are the universal divinity. But the ivy was promptly torn down because heaven forfend, a shrine should give way to the natural world, even if it is revelatory. We held a little ceremony of sorrow around the fallen leaves. But we were there to study in books, so we did that. Study is books. Study is also science. We can empirically perform a study, such as the ones recently revealing Wisconsin's position as third from the bottom in the U.S. in racially distributed pollution, or its recent elevation from number 18 to number 8 in education in the country to study toward our highest ideals, our principles, inclusive education, inclusive health, the best of the gods and goddesses among us and within us. There's study, 
And study enables us to decide what to focus on, because another aspect of study is focus, the deep dive of attention. I ain't gonna study is an act of resistance. I ain't gonna study consumerism, social media, the forces that promulgate fear and hate. I ain't gonna study the rage within. I will not focus and make that the strongest thing to my attention. Your greatest power and act of revolution is where you choose to put your attention. You withdraw the power that you yield to forces of hatred and division with the choices you make about your attention. Because that's admitting our vulnerability. We're vulnerable to all the machinations of the psychology behind advertising, behind propaganda. Our nervous systems are vulnerable to appeals of fear. We have not yet evolved in a way that overcomes that fear as a whole species. We are moving, breathing, living, vulnerable, and striving creatures of dreams and bones. So there's a whole bunch, of course, of theological lenses. I look at your mission statement to welcome everyone, grow in mind and, spot and spirit, lead in social justice, and I see the layers, the artwork of theologies. I see here among you liberation, feminist, process, queer, womanist, Latinx, Christian, pagan, humanist, naturalist theologies. You have most certainly done the work as a religious community. You are a congregation in every sense of the word. And you teach the children. How are the children, Kasarian Enge, ask the people of the Maasai to one another, not the Greek, what is your village and who are your gods, not how are you, but how are the children? Naomi Shihab Nye writes this poem called Shoulders. A man crosses the street in rain, stepping gently, looking two times north and south because his son is asleep on his shoulder. No car must splash him. No car drive too near his shadow. This man carries the world's most sensitive cargo, but he's not marked. Nowhere does his jacket say fragile, handle with care. His ear fills up with breathing. He hears the hum of a boy's dream deep inside him. We're not going to be able to live in this world if we're not willing to do what he's doing with one another. The world will only be wide. The rain will never stop falling. For we are the world. We are human, humus. To increase our humanity, we choose our theologies. We teach our children. It is hoped that we can live in fragility and delicacy using what the Buddhists call skillful means. So we tell the children hurt happens and it's okay to be vulnerable. This is a safe space. If you feel hurt, say, ouch. If you've hurt someone, say, I'm sorry. And then both people get to say, thank you. Ouch. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your feeling 
Thank you for your apology. Ouch. I'm sorry. Thank you. If you feel hurt by someone's turn, by someone's hurt, if you feel hurt by someone's hurt, we tell the children, take turns. After they're hurt, express yours. And then you get to take a turn. They get to say they're sorry. And we both get to say thank you. For adults, we say it in somewhat more fancy language. When you debate a person about something that affects them more than it affects you, remember that it will take a much greater emotional toll on them than on you. For you, it might feel like an academic exercise. For them, it feels like revealing their pain only to have you dismiss their experience and sometimes their humanity. The fact that you might remain more calm under these circumstances is a consequence of your privilege, not increased objectivity on your part. So I stand before you 72 years old, obviously technologically incompetent. <laughs> I'm sorry. So grateful for the privilege and so determined to try to use that privilege toward something larger than myself. And I want to end with two readings, one from a black woman in Tezaki Shange with a womanist, black womanist perspective, and another from the scientist Heinz Pagels, physicist, who ends his book, The Cosmic Code, with this. So first in Tezaki Shange from For Colored Girls Who've Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough. She has just found out about a murdered child. I sat up one night, walking a boarding house, screaming, crying, the ghost of another woman who was missing what I was missing, and I wanted to jump up out of my bones and be done with myself. Leave me alone and go on in the wind it was too much. I fell into a numbness till the only tree I could see took me up in her branches held me in the breeze, made me dawn do that chill at daybreak. The sky wrapped me up, swinging rose light everywhere. The sky laid over me like a million men. I was cold. I was burning up a child and endlessly weaving the moon with my tears. I found God in myself, and I loved her. I loved her fiercely. After that, in this choreo play, there's a beautiful piece of women all holding hands, telling each other I was missing something, something so important, a laying on of hands. And then Heinz Pagels. In response to our vulnerability and mortality, he writes this, I often dream about falling. Such dreams are commonplace to the ambitious or those who climb mountains. Lately, I dreamed I was clutching at the face of a rock, but it would not hold. 
Gravel gave way, I grasped for a shrub, but it pulled loose, and in complete terror, I fell into the abyss. Suddenly, I realized that my fall was relative. There was no bottom and no end. A feeling of pleasure overcame me. I realized that what I embody, the principle of life itself, cannot be destroyed. We are written into the cosmic code, the order of the universe. As I continued to fall in the dark void, embraced by the vault of the heavens, I sang to the beauty of the stars, and I made my peace with the darkness.